good morning, everyone. Thanks for tuning in, whether you're here in person or online. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I am James, one of the pastors on staff. Now, if you grew up going to Sunday school, you might have some familiarity with some of the famous stories in the Bible. We think of stories like David and Goliath, Delilah, David and Goliath, (laughs) or um, Samson and Delilah, or Moses and the burning bush. There are so many famous and really great stories in the Bible, but there's also a bunch of stories that your Sunday school teacher probably never talked about. And then as you get older in life and you're, and you're reading through the Bible on your own, you encounter those stories and you end up saying, what? That's in the Bible? What does that even mean? Or maybe even you came across a story in the Bible that left you feeling like you weren't sure that you wanted to follow a God who would allow that or do that or use that person. Well, if you've ever had that experience, let me say, I think most of us have. And if you haven't, it's only a matter of time because if you read the Bible, you are going to run into a story that leaves you saying, say what? That's the title of our series. So what do we do when we run into a story that doesn't make sense or that flat out offends us? Well, sometimes when we're reading a story that doesn't make sense, it just means that it is time to pause, dig a little deeper by looking at the history and the context and the language of the passage. And when we do that, we often find that the weirdest stories still have a lot to teach us. And so that's what we're doing today as we finish our sermon series called Say What? We're going to look at a story that doesn't make a lot of sense at first, and we're going to dig a little deeper, and we're going to try and find out why this story matters for us. But before we do that, I want to set the stage a little bit. A lot of times when we read a story in the Bible that doesn't make sense, it's because we're looking at a small story without the context of the larger story that it's a part of. I've actually got a little game to help you see what I mean. I'm going to have the tech team throw up an image on the screen. And this image is a tiny piece of a famous painting. And I want you to try and guess what the larger painting that this image is a part of. So anyone have a guess? Last Supper. A bunch of you got that. That's awesome. I picked an easy one. I thought about choosing like the most obscure painting ever. But some of you who didn't get it, you're like, James, that's a stupid game. How on earth am I supposed to tell what painting that's a part of? You just gave me a tiny glimpse at what it was. How am I supposed to see what the larger painting is? Well, if that's you, you are making the exact point that I'm trying to get at here. When da Vinci created The Last Supper, he didn't paint it so that you would only focus on one face without seeing it in the context of the rest of the painting. And a lot of times when we read a story in the Bible, we end up doing exactly that. We focus entirely on one little story without asking the question, how does this contribute to the larger story that's going on? My point is this. Sometimes the key to understanding a weird little story in the Bible is to try and figure out what it contributes to the larger story that it's a part of. So before we dive into our little story today, we are going to look at the larger story that it contributes to. And our story, it's from the book of Judges. It's at the very end. And the book of Judges, it has a cycle that happens over and over and over again. I've got the cycle up on the screen. And that cycle, it goes like this. 
God's people, they drift away and they stop obeying God and they turn to idols. And so God allows them to be oppressed and then they cry out for help and then God sends a savior to the people to bring them back into faithfulness and following him. And this cycle, it repeats over and over and over and over again in Judges until we get to the last three or four chapters where that cycle stops. You see, in chapter 16, the last of these saviors of Israel, a really flawed guy named Samson, he dies. And then the Israelites, they start a new cycle by turning to idols and not following God. And this seems really par for the course for judges, except there's one notable difference. And that's that at this point in the story, God no longer sends a deliverer for Israel. He lets them continue in their ways and experience all that happens when you live without God for an extended period of time. And by departing from this cycle, God's people essentially learn what it looks like to live without God and to not have God intervene to bring them back to faithfulness. And specifically, by doing this, what we end up seeing is that when God isn't constantly intervening to bring his people back, we drift into a natural state of destructive selfishness. And that's where our story picks up today. The people are unfaithful, and God isn't intervening to bring them back. So let's check it out. This is Judges 19, starting in verse 1. Fair warning, this story is a little disturbing. It starts out like this. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, he took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she'd been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early and prepared to leave, but the woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them, they sat down and eat and drank together. And afterward, the woman's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. When the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. And when the man, with his concubine and his servant, got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day's nearly over. Stay, enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. Now, this might seem like a normal start of the story, but when we look a little closer, we end up seeing how pretty much everyone in this story is ruled by their selfishness. To start with, you have a Levite. And Levites, they were like religious leaders of the Israelites, and he takes a concubine. Now, we do have examples of protagonists in the Bible taking concubines, like King David, but just because they do it doesn't make it right And it doesn't change the fact that a concubine, taking one, was an incredibly selfish act. Because having a concubine was basically like having a sex slave. This concubine would have been both like uh, a wife and a slave to the Levite, putting her in a position where she had 
all of the sexual obligations of marriage without like the social and monetary and relational safety nets that, that marriage provided. And she also had to deal with the fact that as a concubine, she had no rights and literally had to do everything that this man told her to do. As a concubine, she had become the victim of this man's selfish sexual desires. But you know, she's not going to live like this. She's going to take her life into her own hands. So she has an affair. And when that falls apart, she runs to the place that you would think she would find safety, which is with her parents. And then this Levite, he waits four months before essentially going to fetch his property, which again illustrates the point that he doesn't really care about his concubine. I mean, he felt no need to to go get her immediately. It wasn't pressing on his conscience to go and win back the woman that he loved. Probably what's going on here is that a few months had passed and he decided that he wanted his sex toy back. So he went to go fetch her. And when this Levite arrives at his concubine's family's house, we're confronted with another selfish character, the concubine's father. Now, there's a little bit of cultural background here that's going to help with this part of the story. You see, the potential consequences that the father of the concubine faced were pretty stiff. Not only could the fact that she had an affair bring disgrace on the family's name, but because this man had sold his daughter as a concubine, the father could have been held financially liable, which to what essentially would amount to faulty goods. The Levite could press charges and demand to be financially compensated because his Levite cheated and then ran off. So if it seems like the father in the story is going above and beyond to show hospitality to the Levite, because he is. He's like schmoozing this Levite so that he doesn't press charges. Stay here another night. Eat as much as you want. Let me make you more comfortable. Have another drink or two or three or four. Be merry. Do what you want. There's no concern for his daughter. There's no thought of the horrible situation that she had run away from. There's no concern with making sure that this woman has any rights Instead, he's just concerned that the Levite doesn't press charges and gets his property back. Now, if this story's making you uncomfortable, uh, let me say that it should. You know, while concubines were normal in this period in history, this story was actually recorded to make you uncomfortable. The author of Judges, he has no illusions about how awful this sounds. And he wants you to hear this and to start to cringe. And the first thing that should make us cringe is how selfish the Levite and the woman's father was. And how she's the one who pays for their selfishness. So all of this, it's starting to illustrate uh, a point in the story, which is this. When the people of God stop following God, we end up being ruled by selfishness. And additionally... When our selfishness goes unchecked, the people who suffer the most are those who have the least power. And in this story, it's the woman. But let's not stop here. Let's keep reading. When they were near Jebus, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We'll go on to Gibeah. So they went on, and as the sun set, they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. 
That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of that place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? I can't read that without thinking of Cotton Eye Joe, by the way. You just can't do it. He answered, We're on our way from Bethlehem and Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. You're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men from the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. The selfishness in this story is absolutely horrific. You know, the town people, they come and they demand the Levite so they can rape him. But instead, the Levite pushes his concubine out the door and leaves her to be abused by this mob. And then what the Levite does is crazy. He goes to bed. I can't imagine something like this going on outside of my door and just going to bed. But that's what he does. He goes to bed and he wakes up in the morning and he decides he's going to go on his way. And the way he discovers his concubine, it's almost like, ah, I forgot about you. Let's go. There's not a lot of concern for her. He doesn't try and console her. He just says, get up. And when she doesn't, he puts her on his donkey and heads for home. Now, when I read this, my first reaction was, what a despicable, horrible, selfish human being that Levite is. But this story, it's actually supposed to do something else here. It's supposed to force you to think about how you would have responded if you were in the situation. Not so you can say, oh, I would have figured out a better solution, but rather so that you can actually see yourself in the Levite's actions. Because let's be real, put in an impossible and horrific situation like that, there's a good chance that our latent selfishness would rear its ugly head, and instead of doing everything that we can to protect everyone involved, there's a good chance that we would just take the weakest person there, throw them out the door, and not really do anything to defend or stand up for them. In this, we are supposed to realize that unless God is actively working and intervening in our lives, we might take the same road that the Levite did. This story is supposed to make us think, God, I need you so that I will never be like that. I need you because I know I might act like that. 
This is supposed to show us that we need God because selfishness has the tendency to be the thing that guides and controls our actions. But there's something else going on in the story I don't want you to miss. Before the horrific rape of the concubine happens, the story tells us this. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. And his master replied, No, we won't go to any city where the people are not Israelites. We'll go on to Gibeah. So what's happening here is that the Levite and his servant, they're worried because it's getting late, and he doesn't want to get caught outside of the city at night. So he says, the, the servant says, hey, it's late. We're close to Jebus. Let's stay there tonight. And the Levite basically responds by saying, are you crazy? You know, Jebus is full of Jebusites. Let's keep going until we reach Gibeah. At least we know that we'll be safe in Gibeah because it's full of Israelites, God's people. This is super important because it helps us see what was supposed to be one of the main differences between the Israelites and the surrounding nations, and that is that the Israelites, the people of God, they were supposed to take care of and protect the weak and the strangers and the foreigners amongst them. You know, traveling during this time in history, it wasn't like traveling today. You couldn't hop in your car, drive 200 miles, stop at a Motel 6 and feel safe. Instead, traveling was fraught with inherent danger because there was a distinct tribalism that pervaded the world of the judges. And cities were typically places where people had some common ancestry or relation. So if you went to a certain town, all the people who lived there were most likely from a common ancestor or who had like married into that family and now were related through kids and marriage. And this was really good because it meant that if you lived in a city with an expansive family and tribal bond, it created like a safety net. You know, if your house burned down, you would have your cousin there to take care of you. And if something bad went down, your mom's sister's husband's uncle's brother-in-law lived there and could help you out. You always had a group of people who could take care of you. But the downside of this is when you went to a city that wasn't a part of your tribe, you were left very vulnerable. And so this is why the Levite says, no, we won't go to Jebus. We need to go to Gibeah because there's Israelites. Now, there's an important part of, of uh, the Bible's teachings. This is Exodus twenty two twenty one. It says, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you were foreigners in Egypt. So even though the Levite is not of the same tribe as those living in Gibeah, he knew that because they were Israelites, they were supposed to take care of foreigners and strangers. So he says, let's not go to Jebus. Instead, let's go to Gibeah because there we won't be mistreated. But exactly the opposite happens. What they were afraid of encountering from the Jebusites, they end up encountering worse at the hands of the Israelites. Instead of acting like God wanted them to, the Israelites had taken on the worst practices that were found in the surrounding cultures. And why? Because when we're not in a place where God is guiding and shaping us and intervening in our lives, we end up with ethics and virtues that are indistinguishable from the surrounding culture. There's two things to consider here. First, this period in history when this was written was so different from our time. You know, in the age of the judges, uh, pillaging was like a profession. <laughs> you had people groups 
who would grow their wealth by going to surrounding communities and, and pillaging them. I don't want to say that it was totally normal, but it wasn't uncommon for people to take on this lifestyle. And so if you were a foreigner who showed up in a city, it wasn't much of a leap for those city dwellers who probably also pillaged to feel like it was okay to use you and abuse you for some sort of gain. So when the Israelites start doing the very things that their neighbors were doing, it showed that they were adopting a similar set of ethics to their neighbors. They were seeing the wisdom of their neighbors in abusing foreign visitors, and they started doing it. But it's easy to, to read this, and because of its extreme nature, to write it off and say, you know, for the most part, our culture isn't pillaging and raping foreigners and strangers. I mean, I haven't seen it yet in Lansing or Detroit or, or commerce, but the principle still stands. While our culture might see it as not being wise to rape a foreign visitor, there are still parts of our culture that are definitely not in line with God and that we easily start to adopt. Because the temptation is almost always to uncritically become more like the surrounding culture and not less like it. So if we're not in a place where God is regularly guiding and shaping and forming us, we will become indistinguishable from the surrounding culture. Secondly, this story works in the extremes. And even though we may never act in as extreme of a fashion, we're still meant to see ourselves in the extremes. And so while I may never come and pound on your door and demand your visitor so I can rape him, I can see other ways where my life is uncritically and often detrimentally taking on the ways of the surrounding culture. Maybe it's the way I spend and handle money. Maybe it's what I post on Facebook. Maybe it's my sexual ethics. Maybe it's how I view politics as my savior. Whatever the case is, when we're not in a place where God is guiding and shaping and intervening in our lives, we end up with ethics and virtues that are indistinguishable from our surrounding culture. So the Levite, he wakes up, finds his concubine on the porch, he puts her on his donkey, and he heads home, and then this happens. This is verse 29. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into 12 parts, and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Again, I cannot reiterate enough that this story is meant to make us sick to our stomachs. There was no original reader of this who would have read that and been like, that makes sense, totally rational thing to do. No, this is horrific. And we have to ask the question, why would he do that? Well, most commentators agree that, this, um, that what's going on here is that this man was upset that his property was destroyed and he was trying to incite the rage of the other Israelite tribes so that they could get vengeance against those who destroyed his property. And his plan seems to work because those who received the cut up body parts, this is what they said in verse 30, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day of the Israelites came out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. And then these Israelites, enraged over what happened, they set out to meet in a place called Mizpah, where the elders of Israel, they gather around to hear from this Levite firsthand what happened. But when the Levite recounts the story, he doesn't actually give a 100% factual accounting. He says, I and my concubine, we came to Gibeah, 
to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me, surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine. She died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. There's no mention of how the men asked to rape him first. There's no mention of how he pretty much shoved his concubine out the door so they'd rape her instead of him. There's no mention of how he didn't do anything to protect her. There's also no mentioning of how his concubine might not have actually been dead when he cut her up. He gives an incredibly one-sided story that makes it seem like he did everything he could. He just couldn't save this woman's life from the wretched hordes. If this man was interested in justice, he would have given a more truthful account. But he didn't, because he's more interested in vengeance than justice. Well, the Israelite elders, they get super angry, and they decide they're going to go to war against the city that wronged the, Israelite, or the Levite. They make a plan, and they say, we'll take 10 men out of every 100, and 100 from the tribes of Israel out of every 1,000, 1,000 from every 10,000 to get provisions for the army. Then when the army arrives at Gibeah and Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for this outrageous act done in Israel. Here's the thing I want you to see. When our selfishness meets the wickedness of others, it ends up creating a cycle of destruction and tribalism. And this is seen in what happens next. The armies of Israel, they go to Gibeah and they ask the city to hand over the men responsible. And instead of Gibeah being like, yeah, that was wrong, we'll give whoever's responsible over to justice. Instead of that, they say, ah, no, these are our people. How dare you threaten them? How dare you accuse us of this? Wasn't it the Levite's fault anyway for showing up in town and dangling himself and his concubine in front of us? The Benjamites basically say, let's circle the wagon, boys. It's time for war. And they gather a huge army and they defend the city of Gibeah and it creates a huge civil war between the tribes of Israel that ends up killing tens of thousands of men. And it ends kind of like what you'd expect. The 11 tribes of Israel, they defeat the Benjamites, and to exact vengeance, they kill every single man, woman, and child of the tribe of Benjamin, except for 600 men who got away. And then they're angry that 600 men got away and they say, we'll never let our daughters marry those 600 men who escaped us. You see the tribalism here? Those people wronged me, so the Levite gets the sympathy of the 11 tribes of Israel, but the people who are being accused say, how dare you accuse us of that? Factions arise, fighting happens, and it still doesn't end here. The 11 tribes of Israel, they start to feel kind of bad about what happened, and they say, Lord God, why has this happened? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Essentially, they're saying, I can't believe we've basically wiped out one of God's tribes. We feel terrible. And now those surviving men, they can't even procreate as Israelites because we vowed not to give our daughters to them. So they thought to themselves, this is verse 8, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? And they discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. Basically, they decide that since Jabesh Gilead didn't join them in battle, they would take all the women from that town and give them to the Benjamite survivors as wives. So 
they assemble, the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and to put to the sword those living there, including women and children. This is what you're to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who's not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. It's more tribalism. Your kind, Jabesh Gilead, you weren't there to help us when we needed you, and so they justify another mass murder and they kidnap all the teenage girls. It's a cycle. A wicked act leads a selfish man to seek vengeance, and in so doing, he, per- he perpetrates another wrong action, which leads more people to a wicked act, which creates more factions and tribal divisions that lead to fighting, that leads to justifying actions because those people did that and these people didn't, and if you were only one of our kind, then you would understand. When the wickedness of others meets our selfishness, it starts a cycle of tribalism and destruction. Like I've been saying, this passage is meant to force you to be introspective. We're supposed to read this and see elements of what our life would be like if it weren't for God's constant intervening. And I think this is the most applicable one for our time and age because we see this every day. When my selfishness goes unimpeded, It runs into the selfishness and wickedness of others. And instead of my reactions being full of love and forgiveness, my reactions are focused on self-preservation and tribalism. I mean, just look at politics right now. One side feels wronged and it says something to the other. And instead of being received with empathy and a listening ear, it's received with defensiveness. How dare you say that's what's going on? And that in turn creates animosity. Well, if you weren't such a bigot, maybe you would understand And all of a sudden you have people who might actually agree over a great deal hating each other and writing nasty things on Facebook. And then your cousin sees what you wrote on Facebook and feels like their tribe's being attacked. So they unfriend you and refuse to come to family events, which then in turn gives you ammunition to use about how that tribe blows everything out of proportion and takes everything personal. When our selfishness meets the wickedness of others or the other way around, When our wickedness meets the selfishness of others, it creates a destructive cycle of tribalism. And the key to this is to not see this as something that other people do, but to see this as something that I participate in naturally, unless I have God constantly shaping, forming, and intervening in my life. So the question we need to ask is, How do we apply a story like this? Well, I've got three suggestions. First, the way this story fits into the larger story of the book of Judges, it's supposed to show us how desperately we need God to deliver us from ourselves. And so ultimately, this story is supposed to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the intervention that God has given us to save us from our selfishness. In more biblical terms, Jesus is the intervention to save us from our sin. And whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or whether you're considering following Jesus today, please hear this. The biggest thing we can take away from this story is that the only true and lasting hope that we have is Jesus. Only in trusting and following him is there any hope of being saved from and guided away from our selfishness and destructive tribalism. 
So if you're looking at your life and you're seeing some of this stuff from the passage, my encouragement for you would be to call out to Jesus and say, I need you, please save me. I put my trust in you and I want to follow you. But secondly, we need to realize that this story, it wasn't written to show us how evil the world will be without God. No, this story is about what happens to God's people when they lose their focus on God and turn to other things. Meaning that if you're a Christian, you need to keep putting yourself in a position where you are constantly looking for God's intervention. This is one of the reasons why I think weekly church attendance and active participation in the life of the church is so important. The tendency in my life isn't to just naturally become more faithful. I don't accidentally become more like Jesus. No, I need leaders and friends who can call me out when I'm letting my selfishness take over. And I need to hear the word of God preached. And I need to sing songs to how great God is so that my heart is formed for love. This story is to make us, this story is supposed to make us want to do everything we can to not let our selfishness take over. And that means putting ourselves in positions where we seek the guidance and intervention of God is paramount. And finally, our story today showed us how we tend to naturally fall into destructive habits. That means we need to assume that we will always need to be repenting of something. This has a lot to do with humility. You know, if a fellow Christian or maybe your spouse challenges you on how you spend your money or the types of things you're posting on Facebook, maybe it'll turn out that that person is mistaken. But maybe they're right, and we do need to turn from some wrong thinking or acting. But if our assumption is that we are always right, we'll never change. But if our assumption is that we tend to move away from God and not toward Him, then maybe we will better be able to see when we need to repent and change. This is um, a hard story to preach on. It's a hard story to read. But I hope you see how it fits into a larger narrative and shows that our tendency is to not become more faithful, but rather to become less faithful. In fact, we have a tendency to become more selfish, to become more like the bad parts of our culture, and to become more tribalistic and destructive. And because of this, we need God's constant intervention in our lives. So join with me, and let's be a people who know how desperately we need Jesus, a people who are constantly looking for God's guidance and direction, and a people who are humble enough to know that we will always need to be repenting of something. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story, even though it's horrific and challenging and we sometimes wish it wasn't in Scripture, we can still learn from it, Lord. And so we pray that you help us realize that our tendency isn't to grow closer but to drift. So help us root ourselves in you, in a community that follows you, with leaders who are willing to help us see our selfishness. God, help us know that we'll always need to be repenting of something. Lord, we are so thankful that you do intervene and that you sent Jesus. So we praise you and we thank you. In your name, amen. 